Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life and life in the theatre. I'm Jonathan Cake, and welcome to the very final episode of the first season, or series, if you're English, of Stage Door Johnny. And it's incredibly appropriate that my guest this week is the unicorn of Stage Door Johnny. He is the inspiration... I've been saving him for last because he is the cherry on top of my pod cake. He is the actor who appeared in silhouette at the back of the stage in early 2022, when I hadn't been in a theatre for three years. A global pandemic had happened. I was sat next to my 14-year-old son, and his extraordinary stage presence appeared at the back of the stage and we were suddenly filled with this primal excitement. It was like I'd never seen a play before in my life and Sir Simon Russell Beale stepped on stage, indisputably one of the great stage actors of our time. And gave this dazzling performance. It's about 45 different characters. He won the Tony for it. And it was just magical. And I went out for lunch with Simon a couple of days after that, took him back to the stage door, watched him walk off into the bowels of the Amundsen Theatre and thought, I know nothing about you. I've known you for practically 30 years. I just don't know anything about what it's like for you inside the millions of theatres, inside the millions of dressing rooms, on the inordinate numbers of stages you've stepped on in your life. I just don't know your stories. I don't know your experience. I don't know anything about you. And that led me to think, I don't know enough about the great theatre artists of my time. I'd like to find out more because I'm suddenly back in the thrall of this ancient art form as though I'm seeing it for the first time. So that's what started off me wanting to make this podcast. So it seems completely fitting that Simon is my final guest of this season. But look, there's a terrible admission here. I screwed up the audio. Yes, I screwed up the audio. I don't know what I was supposed to press that I didn't press, or I pressed something that I wasn't supposed to press. I don't know, but I screwed it up. So listen, the audio has been magnificently restored by Nick Abnett. Nick, thank you. We took a lot of time and trouble, or rather Nick did, to make this audio up to snuff. It may not be the pellucidly clear, beautiful, (laughs) sonic, experience that you normally have, I hope, on this podcast, but it's okay. Maybe if you're in a generous frame of mind, you'll think, well, it just sounds intimate. Sounds like they're in a cave together, which in a way we were. We're in his dressing room at the Bridge Theatre, which, as you'll hear us discuss, was not opulent, despite the magnificence of the theatre surrounding it. Um, We were there because he was in the middle of playing the title role in Ibsen's John Gabriel Borkman. Brilliant, brilliant performance. And we talked in autumn last year, 2022. It was one of three performances that I saw Simon give in 2022. Lehman, Borkman, and then we went to see him in A Christmas Carol. And all were extraordinary. It was the year of Beale. And I couldn't have been happier about it. Look, no more hot waffle. It's the most glorious chat. And I could not have wished 
for a better inspiration for this podcast, and I couldn't have wished for a finer chat with that inspiration, and I couldn't have wished for a better guest to finish this season off. Gentlemen of the Stage Door Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call. Mr. Beal and Mr. Cake to the stage, please. Have a great last show. This is your beginner's. This is quite surprising for a leading actor of your extraordinary <laughs> we, are, we are in a space less generous than a prison cell. Yeah. Slightly bigger than a coffin. With plywood. Is that plywood? It seems like some kind of temporary uh, yes. wooden paneling. I think this theatre is completely beautiful. It's the Bridge Theatre. Where you and they have fake daylight coming down. If I switch that light on. It's that really clever light that they have, unlike the Barbican, which of right. course is all underground. Yeah, yeah. Horrible dressing room. But this one has fake daylight. So avoid seasonal disorder in their casts. <laughs> Can you imagine with this particular cast of John Gabriel Bourne with, with seasonal yes. disorder? Yes. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> so when Bortman flees at the end of the Play. He's just trying to get some. Yeah. Vitamin, just trying to get some. Yeah, vitamin that's D. basically what it is, isn't it? it is it's a lack of vitamin D for eight years. The ultimate lockdown play, isn't it? You you decided to do it before the pandemic hit. Yeah, right? I saw, and I'm sure other people have said this to you, but I saw what I thought was possibly one of the greatest few minutes of acting I've ever seen in John Gabriel Portman at the National Theatre years ago with Paul Schofield. I saw it too. Yeah, yeah. which there's production. And I don't remember anything particularly about it up until the point at the end of the play, when Borkman famously goes out into the wilds of Norway and sees the land in front of him and whispers his love for the metal he can gouge out of it. And I just remember being absolutely astonished by it. And, and Nick said to me, Nick Heitner said to me, I was running the British Theatre, what, what, what haven't you really explored? And I said, well, uh, Ibsen. I've only done one Ibsen. And I mentioned this moment of watching Paul Schofield isn't it awful? I thought, I want to do that. Let's yeah. see if I can copy him, which I never could. For anyone who doesn't know the play, which is, by the way, to say most people, even people who know Ibsen's plays, because it's so rarely done, late Ibsen. Yes, second to last. Second to last. And it's about three dead people. I mean, they're living, but they're virtually dead. And right. he, he calls it a dance of death. Right. The next play, the last play he wrote, he actually has dead people. Yes. <laughs> he was course. moving in that direction when we dead away. It's a sort of extraordinary funeral procession, yeah. isn't it? Anyway, people who don't know the play, most of the action takes place. Borkman is sort of self-incarcerated in his room, which he paces up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. So <laughs> everybody came to see this play after having been in their own rooms, pacing up and down with their own thoughts all this time. It must have yeah, been particularly Yeah, I think it, 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 yeah. And it, we didn't expect that, obviously, yeah. when we first... First, did it? I mean, there are also other things like um, it's funny about the word that you know when people say oh, it's irrelevant and all that, and I'm not sure it's a word that's particularly useful. And they are great plays, you know, with these great writers. But in, if you wanted to look for relevance, you know, then only have got a, a, a man who and a woman who have incarcerated themselves in the house on different floors and mm-hmm. never see each other, which sounds like a sort of lockdown nightmare. But we also have the narcissism of a man who's been chucked out of office, as it were. Yes for criminal behaviour and is assuming he's going to be called back. And I don't I don't know whether that has any resonance in, in Western democracies at the moment. I mean it it I literally say things that I think I've heard said, certainly ex Prime Ministers. Yeah, and I was unaware of that until I did the final read through of Lucinda's final version. And I thought, I think I've I think I've just heard a resignation speech which has had these phrases in it. Herd mentality, oh. and, and they'll they'll call me back because they're so incompetent. I mean, extraordinary. They're really extraordinary. I absolutely loved it. And as, as you say, these great plays have a way, don't they? Like Peter Brooks' idea about Shakespeare's bumping planets are just a little bit closer to us, depending on our preoccupations at any one time. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so it's it's exactly right. They pierce. It's like holding a sort of prism, isn't it, up to the light. Whatever our light is will be refracted through these great plays, and yeah. we'll find. And we've had people. Somebody came who spent lockdown with somebody building a wooden partition to separate them 
from their spouse. <laughs> and apparently this person just sat there thinking, this is extraordinary. <laughs> I've literally lived through this. Right. And hearing them move about. How did you find out? Well, there was from a, a person in the cast who told me the story that she'd said she'd met this person who said, I, I sat there with my hand to my mouth thinking, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm just been through this. Wow. Yeah. So, and so that, that's a rather specific version of what you're saying because actually to do with when the planet is coming closer to you personally, things like, because Ibsen was so angry when he wrote this play, I think, uh, about his sacrifice of love for his work. You know, mm-hmm. which is an old idea, isn't it, that lots of artists talk about. But yeah, that was a man writing about the fact that he was in a loveless marriage mm-hmm. with a son he didn't know, but he'd written some great plays. And is it really worth it? Have you sacrificed your love for your plays? No, I don't think so. My uncle once said to me, I only have one uncle, Uncle John, he once very sweetly were having a beer in the garden of his house in Wales, and he said, uh, I think you ought to have a relationship. And I said, well, yes, so do I. <laughs> but it hasn't happened. And he said, yes, you, you've concentrated on your career. And I said to him, I don't think it's that. I don't think it's that. But the reason you are my founding guest for this <laughs> podcast is because... For, for circumstantial reasons, first of all, that you, I think I told you this, you completely kick-started, reignited this crazy pilot light for this ancient medium theatre when I came to see you and the trilogy with my son. And because then we went out for lunch and I took you back to the theatre and I watched you wander off into the theatre after you'd signed yourself in. And I thought to myself, I've known Simon for... I mean, since I saw you on stage first as Thersites at the RSC and Sam Mendes' production of Troilus and Cressida, 30 years, you know, plus. And yet I know nothing about what goes on, your life in the theatre, between when you sign yourself in every night, thousands and thousands of stage mm. doors you've been into, and what a mixture of the quotidian and the magical that happens every night before you come back out it again. And... One of the founding questions of this podcast is why we're so compelled to do it. I cannot think of anyone whose urge is more pathological than yours. Google won't even tell me how many plays you've done. Google doesn't know. No, I don't think I do. You don't know. Because you are, of all the people I know, and I think of all our theatre practitioners, at that lunch, you told me that a new book had come out about the Shakespearean scholarship on stage. It was called Burbage to Branner. Yeah. And you said if they want to be, it could have been Burbage to Beale, which I think is absolutely <laughs> Well, <right. clears throat> the reason why that, that was a very funny book, because they changed, uh, it was Stanley Welch who wrote that, and obviously Ken Branner will sell the book better than Russell Beale. But the, um, it was done by date of birth, so it started with Burbage, and then goes through, and it's very flattering to be in the, in the list at all. But I noticed that they swapped round me and, Ken, because actually I was born later than Ken. <laughs> so in order to get the title right, they swapped the dates. No, but, but, the, but the important point is that you said, and it's true, that I found out that you have played more of the major Shakespearean roles in more major theatres than anyone since the originator of these parts, Richard Burbage. And so my question is simply, why? why? I don't know, and I don't know whether um, it's... it's um, it was never planned, and I, was, I never planned to do much Shakespeare. I mean, this much Shakespeare. I don't know where the original thing comes from. I mean, I think, oh, God, where does yours come from? I don't know. I didn't come from a family that was particularly literary. Although I remember years, years after I started, my mother told me that she used to listen to Olivier doing Hamlet in her bedroom. But there was no sort of sense of literary exploration at all, really, because it was all music. And I lived abroad for a lot of my early life because my father was in the army. So I didn't go to the theatre. And we didn't even see things like, I missed all the great television things like Monty Python and Forty Towers. So when they come up in references in rehearsals, they often do. You know, they say, well, this scene's a bit like, you know, the battling scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I have no idea what you're talking about. And when I did Spamalot, when I did Spamalot, that was my introduction to Monty Python, um, uh, which is the stage version of Monty Python. Um, so there was none of that. And I was brought up, as you know, as a, as a chorister. I sang all the time. Dad sang. And then 
I did uh, Hippolyta, Midsummer Night's Dream at prep school, at choir school. How old would you have been? Twelve. Okay. Grandma, who lived in Romford and was, looked after me when my parents were in Singapore, and used to come down every two weeks to have a cup of tea. And she made my costume. She wasn't a seamstress particularly. And what was the dressmaker? I remember so clearly. It was ivory silk dress and gold coloured um, sort of toby with a brooch. And I remember Hippolyta's first speech is about a crescent moon. I remember being very proud of the fact that I traced the shape of a crescent moon in the air. Um, that was my first taste of Shakespeare. And I do remember reading Julius Caesar. Why do you always Julius Caesar to kids? No sex, I suppose. Uh, maybe that's it. It's fighting. Yeah, talking about, about yes. Roman politics. Yeah, great. Right. Um, I've never understood that. Anyway, we were reading, and the headmaster, who I loved, very small school, where he thought 30 kids, and gave me um, Julius Caesar to read um, Dogs of Water Speech. And I remember I can tell you where I was sitting, and I can tell you what the weather was like. And I can tell you that there was a shaft of sunlight coming through the little library windows. So that obviously had some sort of effect. Mm. And one of my friends, grandfather was Bernard Miles, who ran the Merman Theatre, was very famous for his performance of Long John Silver. And I remember going down with Ben, we weren't allowed out very often in the little school, but walking down to the Merman, which of course was very close, to see his mum and his granddad. And I remember the smell. I mean, I know it's a cliche, I remember the smell of the grease paint. Wow. And, and getting my first sticks of Five and nine, and so obviously something was happening. The Shakespeare bug was was beginning to bite, and then what was that thing? Back to the library and the shaft of light, and cry havoc and mess up the dogs of war. The Anthony speech, because that's a knotty and difficult rhetorical speech where he keeps saying sort of the opposite of what he means. No, I played Brutus at the National Youth Theatre. I've done Anthony and Anthony Cleopatra, done them later on. Can you remember what I think it was to do with connection? I think there was something muscular going on. Okay. I literally think there was a pounding going on as I read. I probably didn't understand, but there was something about the engine of this, the power. And talking about sense, I remember years later, my great English teacher at school, I was reading a Shakespeare sonnet, and he said, you're a typical actor, aren't you? Absolutely, I have no idea what that means, but it sounds great. And uh, you know, the, the Julius Caesar thing was about a, it was about it was about the beat, but it was about power. It was about a bomb, a bomb, a bomb, a bomb, a bomb. And and I even as a however old I was, for a young boy, the the images of dogs of war and mm. it had a sort of visceral thing. But I think it was it was a physical thing. Yeah. I can believe that. I wonder if you're anything like me in feeling like you're addicted to the extremity of these parts. That's a very interesting question. And I immediately think of doing the end of King Lear and thinking you're tearing down the fabric of your your psyche somehow. Before we started this, you, you said something about the moments of when you think you're soaring. And there is a sort of thing about the end of the very great big plays. It's to do with tiredness mm. and to do with exhaustion and it's to do with, I don't give a fuck anymore. I think I used to do that sometimes twice a day. I can't remember now. But by the time you carry on to read for the second time, you are sort of beyond care. It's just a great roar from inside. And, you know, I'm, I'm aware that we all use our own frustrations and our own anger. I don't think I'm known to be a very angry person, but mm. I'm inside. <laughs> Yeah, use it a lot. So I think that sort of release is is absolutely part of it. It's 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 a when you ask that question before we started, I, I was thinking of those moments when you think I can do anything. I can do. I can stand on my head and I'd still be king there. But do you feel I'm trying to get to the bottom of why you are of all as I said of all the people I know and revere? I don't know how the longest period that you've ever been away from doing a play, <laughs> but apart from lockdown when it was enforced. Yeah. It's been, I was talking to my friends, it's been about two years, isn't it, from when did we start? We started lockdown. our careers. Okay. <laughs> um, 
30 years. When did we start? I don't know. Well, mid, mid 80s, wasn't it? You started a bit earlier than me. I was still at college then. But 82, yeah. 83. <clears throat> yeah. Right. And you had, apart from the early days when perhaps you weren't getting work, which I'd love to find out more about, by the way, what's the longest do you think you've been out of a theatre or a rehearsal room doing play? Smugglers here in months. But I love the use of smuggly because you know in other in other people that would be a sort of compulsion, right? That that you could. Well, I suppose it is, isn't it? I mean, I've never, right. I've never really. I mean, you know, you're talking to me today, and if somebody said you don't have to do Borkman tonight, I would be thrilled. <laughs> so there's obviously some funny pathology going on here because, and I, I've been. Uh, actually, that reminds you that I was um, once off for injury for three months, and I surprised myself about how upset I was about that. Huh. Because if it, if you'd honestly said to me, halfway through a regional tour of Richard III round small towns in England, huh. you don't have to do it anymore, I would have been thrilled. But gosh, I I, I was upset. About that. I remember it so well because I remember that Richard III, like it was yesterday, one of the imperishable memories of a. Stage performance of my life, absolutely. My second time in town. Kieran Hines took over, didn't he? Yeah. When you did something to Achilles, I know it was my. I slipped a disc. Uh, uh, It was. Oh, it was awful. It was awful. And I came up, and we'd done this. I said this small scale tour around Mm -hmm. England, which was hard work, and arrived at the Donmar Warehouse, glamorous London theatre. This was the the prize at the end of it. I did one show, came off, went into the shower, turned round and this terrible pain, mm-hmm. and my agent was taking me to the Ivy, and I thought, well, you know, a couple of martinis, it'll be <laughs> <laughs> At three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, we were in casualty, and that was it. And I I, uh, I refused to admit that it was a, a slip disc. I said, I'll go and see an acupuncturist, and I'll go and see a physiotherapist, and I'll do everything but get a scan of my back, of right. course. And my family, being all medical, they were all medical, and they said, you, you really grew up. You can't actually function. You can't walk. You can't sleep. You can't have a bath. So my brother, who was a very junior doctor then, got a private scan, and he was we were living together at the time in a flat, and he got a scan and read it in the kitchen. I remember this. He held it up in the kitchen window, and he went, "No, I think you need to be operated on now." Oh. So the Royal Shakespeare Company paid for me to have it done. Anyway. I, I cannot tell you the psychological. I used to phone Sam every day from the hospital. In those days, there was a hospital on the phone at the end of the war. We must talk about who's been my great colleague for a long time. And it was our second production. I phoned him every day. Did you? I used to hobble. Because the magical thing about that operation is the pain goes immediately. So I thought, I'm perfectly fine. I can walk. It's fine. And I used to hobble to the end of the ward on the payphone. And phone him every day until he had to say, I don't want you to phone me anymore. Please stop phoning me. I've got Kieran Hines to do it. That's it. I don't want to hear from you for the next. That was Sam being. But that must have been awfully hard. Oh, it was awful. Physical pain of it. But also, Father Kieran is a wonderful actor who you had worked with in the first time I ever saw you. Again, in the Sam Mendes first production with you, Troilus and Crest at the RC, when. You were playing for Cites, and Kieran was playing in a fantastic Achilles. Yeah, marvellous. Amazing. Passing yeah. Joseph as Metropolis. Yes. I mean, whole, that whole production was, again, I still think that's electric. one of Sam's yeah. greatest productions. It, it was impeccable. It captured something ah, extraordinary. And it was sort of shining like a, it was like a pearl, yeah. wasn't it? It sort of shone. Yeah. Um, and, this had, and now looking back, it had that sort of amazing cast, Ray Fiennes, Amanda Roop, Sally Dexter, you name it. Um, and, so uh, we'll return to the, this point, the point of this compulsion. We'll try and get right. back to it. If yes, can, I wish I could it. Be, uh, who can possibly say? But maybe we'll have another little go at it. But let's, let's not <laughs> run over these. Because you failed that time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so <exactly>. did I. <laughs> let's, let's, let's talk about Troilus then. Okay. Exactly. You had been uh, at the RSC, I think, the year before. I'd done four years of the RSC, I think. Okay, I no, no, two years. Sorry, two years. Right. And had great success in Man of Mode. Oh, that was a very, that was an interesting one. Yeah, Man of Mode was one of them. Where has Restoration Comedy gone, yes. by the way? Well, it's funny. One of the planets, isn't it? Yeah. And they're not hovering close to us. No. I they're had. sexy and sly. Yeah, well, Man of Mode. Really? Man of Mode is a, is a 
dark play yeah. about sexual power play. I mean, with you, it's and they're quite realistic too. They make a sort of good match actually. But that I'd done a year. Gosh, I'm trying to get the sequence right. But I remember I, I'd done a. I, I joined the RSC and I did some small part, the medium part, you know. And then uh, Adrian Noble, who was running the theatre at the time, said, "I want to do uh, the Plantagenets, and it's basically the Henry Six plays all squashed together." And which the third. And uh, I'd like to look at you for Henry VI. So I spent about three days with Adrian being sort of auditioned. And then we took a taxi from the audition place back to the theatre for me to the evening show. And he said, I'm so sorry, I won't be giving you Henry VI uh, because I've just discovered this young actor, the National Theatre called Ray Fines. <laughs> that was the first time I heard about Ray. And uh, uh, but would you like to do a whole year of Restoration Fox? And my heart absolutely sank. I thought, you must be joking. But I thought, actually, as, a, as, a, as an academic exercise, apart from anything else, see if you can make three different Fox different. Yeah, so I'd done that. And then Sam was the new hot thing. Sure. As you remember. It was an extraordinary... Too well. <laughs> I think he was, he'd done Chichester, hadn't he? And I think he'd sort of... Yes. Well, stepped in in Chichester. Exactly. He rescued the production of London Assurance, yeah. another play you did later on with Paul Eddington. And when Robin Phillips, who was then directing it, dropped out, and he was this young Vindekin who'd taken over the tent in Chichester and then the inaugural artistic director of this little theatre there called Phil Minerva. And then he was suddenly off doing the Cherry Orchard with Judy Dench and putting his arm That's right. Saying, so I'll take care of you, Judy. You know, all the same things to her, like, well, you could try it like that, but it won't work, you know, which was sort of became famous at the moment, this extraordinary Hudsburg, this kid. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember first meeting them? No, but I remember we were in an army barracks, an army camp called Tidworth in Yorkshire, the family. My parents were stationed there. And we were living in a house called Jalalabad House. Can you imagine? Mum came from into the living room and said, oh, phone call from somebody called Sam Mendes. <laughs> and I went and he said, um, obviously I'd heard of him, and uh, he said, I'm doing Toronto Investor. I'd like you, I'm offering you Thesites. And I remember again, my heart sinking, thinking, oh God, a Shakespeare clown. No, please, God, no. Mm. And I actually accepted it entirely careeristically, as it were. I thought, well, I've got to work with him because everyone's talking about him and he's offering me a part to work with him. And as we've implied, already that particular production was one of the happiest things I've done with him. It was the first time we met and I believe you'd have to ask Sam this, but I believe the other artistic director of the, of the Royal Shakespeare at the time was somebody called Terry Hans, who had an enormous influence. He recently died, but he had an enormous influence, which since his death, everyone's suddenly recognizing or putting people together. Mm. You know, he was one of those sort of people who, anyway, apparently he said to Sam, I think you should look at, Simon, because I think we'd enjoy working with him. So Sam obviously took his advice and phoned me up and offered me this part. It proved to be one of the very few Shakespeare clowns that is actually very funny. <laughs> I hate to say that, but he, he is genuinely funny, partly because he's so unpleasant. Mm. But I don't actually remember the first time I actually set eyes on him. I remember the first time I set eyes on you, because you came on as the scientist and you were wearing a sort of... Thesites is, is Ajax's kind of servant, right? You came on wearing a, a sort of leather scrum cap. Yeah, horrible, that, yeah. That sort of seemed to hide this great scrofula, something suppurating beneath. And you had surgical gloves oh, I was so pleased. Both your hands, which were sort of dripping their latex. I, I, it's very, diff very difficult to do... Um, Orally, but I, I got these. I decided that he obviously had a terrible skin condition, right? And which he had meant he had to cover it up all the time. And I got these surgical gloves and reversed them so the thumb went on the little finger oh, and the little goodness. finger went on the thumb, so it distorted the hands. So they became, oh, um, and they went. I don't know whether I was a smoker at that time because of that, but um, they went to nicotine yellow every night <laughs> from my sweat. <laughs> they used to change colour over the three hours. He had various things on his... It was one of those invented costumes. It's a very interesting period of, of design in British theatre, that the mid to late 80s, because 
people like Sam Mendes and Nick Heitner were coming in and doing what I, looking back on it, grew up with when we do Shades, which is sort of abstractly non-specific. So Trevor Nunn, the previous generation, would be doing all as well set in 19th century oh, India. Yeah. yeah. Or the, one of the best productions of most of Venice I've ever seen more recently, but set in modern-day Venice. You know, so absolutely specific, naturalistic settings, which is Trevor at its, at its absolute best. And then Nick and, and Sam and people like that came in and sort of stripped it all away, do you remember? And they mm. sort of went, mm. no, it's sort of non-specific, but each, each figure has a sort of resonance that's to do with who he, who he or she is. Mm. And my costume was just a, a collection of... Um, Oh, disgusting old coat. And I had a gay pride badge and a, and a CND badge because he was anti-war, apparently, as a character. Was and it your first entrance? <laughs> I think, you know. Well, Thesites is one of the warriors. Ajax is sort of Batman yeah. when we first meet him. And he came on <laughs> with a huge domed silver food dish, put it on a little table, camp table, lifted up this the silver dome and there's huge shape fry breakfast for Ajax. That starts this morning. And the Cites, who despises everyone, just is is the word hawking? I don't know. Is that the is that the right word? And then spat this huge gob of spit into the fried breakfast, put the lid back on, and then walked off. <laughs> um, and I just, I personally found that terribly oh, funny. Oh and then Ajax comes on, of course, eats the breakfast. It's a brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> I mean, it was just, you brought the house down every night. I saw, I saw that production two or three yeah. times. And it was also, we couldn't believe that you were doing it. We thought, oh, no, he's not, he's not, he's not going to do gonna, it. And then he's not going to speak. He's just going to leave this, the, the The thing that makes it is walking off, exactly isn't it? right. Why, why is that well, funny? This was a, this is a brilliant Mendesian flourish, of course, because I remembered it years ago when your uncle, but later, in the Uncle Vanya, the late great Helen McCrory, do you remember, Zelena, came on. Made herself, poured herself yes. a cup of tea for the first entrance. and gave you every single thing that you needed to know about her sexual frustration, her languor, the heat of the day, her sort of feral dissatisfaction of something, and then left yeah. without saying a thing. And it's one of the things that I yes, think that's strange. I hadn't made the connection. Oh, I know we're jumping around here, but that Uncle Vanya, um, Helen. Love it, Helen. I used to see her ever, obviously, when we went into work, I'd, you know, we'd chat. And it was the morning of the first day of tech. So we'd, we'd you know, I'd soon see her. And we were all putting costumes on and getting ready to start the sort of full version of the play. It's full fat version of the play, which opens with a nurse and Uncle Varnett, played by me, and Mark Strong playing Astrof. And we did this whole scene. I still haven't seen Helen. And I thought, well, I usually see her. And she made her first entrance, which you've just described, walking across the stage in front of me and Mark playing Astroff, very, very slowly, poured herself a cup of tea, and as you say, went off. And literally no acting required from me and Mark. Because she, I think she was wearing a, a costume that was rooting for Meryl Streep, actually, but ravishing. And I said later to her, you did that deliberately, didn't you? She said, yeah, I didn't want you to see me before. Oh, wow. So uh, literally, I mean, our, our, our mouths dropped <laughs> as we just watched. And of course, both of them were in love with her in the play. And there it was. She did something really, really clever. Yeah. And it was deliberate. Yeah. Marvellous woman. Uh, yeah, so that, the, the exit of, of the Cites was what made it funny rather than the actual spit. It was the most... Always, although I think actually his eating the breakfast also made it funny yeah, because... Avoiding, I have to say, the gob of spit in the middle of the, <laughs> the, of the plate, moat, thank God. The moat of sputum. <laughs> um, I, I still remember you saying... Lechery, lechery, 
still wars and military. Well, the funny thing about Thucydides, and the reason why it was a fascinating psychological case to study, is that, of course, you suddenly realise that this, he's famously possibly the most cynical of all the clowns. His language is, as I say, genuinely funny and genuinely sharp. I mean, I like that he describes Agamemnon as um, having not so much brain as earwax and things like that, which actually is a genuinely funny line, and yeah. they're rare in Shakespeare. And there's a marvellous, marvellous speech where he says, I'd rather be, and he gives a whole list of animals, I'd rather be, a, I can't remember, them, a camel, a camel, a sheep thing, but to be Menelaus uh, would be beyond. I mean, it's just fantastic. But, of course, all, for all his criticism of, and by the way, isn't it wonderful that Menelaus doesn't say anything? The whole source of the whole problem mm. that marriage that's right i think he's got about three lines amazing i think he's just riddled with shame <laughs> can't speak for shame uh, but this great cynic who sits there going you know you're all wasting your time you're all hopeless is of course a romantic yes. so that nothing else literally literally was a sort of a cry from a romantic rather than a cry from a cynic sort of scarf was left on stage by Cressida and he used to sniff the scarf I do a lot of sniffing in sounds production maybe a lot of sniffing of scarves do you sniff the scarf (laughs) at the fellow? yeah probably (laughs) I sniffed some pyjamas I was going to think about it Um, yeah the smell of a woman the smell of love or sex and I suddenly thought that's that's the motorist he he would love Achilles to be Achilles. Yeah. And he's watching his, because he eventually ends up in his service, watching his boss not being a hero. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. I, I think that was the motive between, behind that cynicism. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. It's the reverse. <laughs> and how long after that was it when you did Richard III for Sam, the Dolma, the one we've been talking about when you got injured? That was about a, that was a couple of years. Was and it? And he offered me that. It was my 30th birthday party. He might, he might correct me on this, but as I remember it, he offered it to me at my 30th birthday party, which my parents gave me in uh, where we were living in Wiltshire. That was, again, another pollutedly clear production. He, I don't know, that period of his work was just sort of effortless. And it's very interesting talking about our relationship, because we'll come on to the last thing we did, which was the Lehman Trilogy later presumably but you know there came a period when I think we both needed to stimulate each other in a different way we knew each other so well on the rehearsal floor the interesting thing about me and Sam is we, we don't often see and he always teases me about this I want to send this to the papers but we don't often see each other outside work <clears throat> and it's the one relationship with my in my life and I suppose Nick now is, is another one okay. where I know where I I have a deep emotional attachment to somebody but sort of at work. Is it part of the comp- housing of the compulsion? Can we venture that? That you need, it's so particularly to do with a place and a relationship. But it might be a bit, I don't know what, sort of alter it somehow, the state, the sense of it to be. Because you see, I have a thing with Sam where I don't work with him. But yes, we've exactly talked about this. Yes, you see him. All, yeah, yeah, you see him all the time on, you know, on stage. He's sort of my greatest friend, but. but um, he offered me Buckingham when he did Richard III again once, which was going to be the bridge going all over the world. Yeah. He couldn't go away. But that, for both of us, I think was a slightly nerve-wracking idea. So I just and did you tell it down? I did. I'm sorry to say whoever played it, but I know who played Buckingham. It's a marvellous actor, Chuck Woody Uji, who was then my... Uh, oh, God. Was the, the barge she sat on. Thank you. It was my inner barbers when I didn't know anything. Brilliant. Anyway, I don't know. There were, you see, I'm not sure that out of work, I think, I think much about acting. You don't spend much time not doing it. Well, I suppose that's true. But I do remember, I, I, it was only very recently that I started becoming interesting in, uh, interested in particularly in, in Shakespearean editing history. This sounds so dull, no, but it's no, not. No, I bet not. No, it's not. Performance history, um, particularly. Well, performance history, but also actually uh, literally the editing of the yeah, text. Yeah. And uh, that's very recent. And I'm now actually 
sort of co-editing of, um, an edition of Shakespeare um, when I've just done King Lear and Dispatch to the third for Arden in the sort of performance edition. So, so Arden light, literally light. Well, the books are actually lighter for actors to carry around on, on the rehearsal floor. So anyway, I've become actually rather interested in editing and that led to actually really, I didn't know anything about theatre history really. And, and Sam, one of the people used to tease me about my bookshelves, which are just full of weird bits of history. And when he was doing Troy Scrooge, he stayed with me for a week in the house that I was renting in Stratford because it was opposite the stage door. And he used to say, I haven't got anything to read and I can't read any of them. Shit. <laughs> but there was nothing, I don't know why, perhaps I do separate, perhaps I do go home and go, no, I'm going to think about music or play the piano because I play the piano or I don't know, perhaps I've compartmentalised it and that's where, but the, the important thing for me, I think for, about those professional relationships, as I implied earlier, they're hugely emotional. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. To be devoted and irritated by Sam, sure. as he is by me, but emotionally committed to him and to Anthony Kine and to Roger Michel and whoever I've worked with, but sort of somehow not need to see, see them, them afterwards or to watch their children grow up or yeah. anything like that. That makes complete sense. Have you ever had a huge round? Yes. One was a mini, well, the first one was a mini round, which is when at the beginning of Uncle Vana, which we've already mentioned, yeah. I was finding it very difficult to get it right. And uh, at one point I said it was not easy to do because of the translation. <laughs> and he shouted at me, stop fucking blaming that writing. He shouted at me. Yeah, yeah. No, he wasn't happy. The second time was a much bigger one, which is when he was due to do King Lear and then wanted to postpone it. And I'm not very good at rows. And it's a very, it's a very juvenile characteristic of mine. I sulk. So we were due to do it at the National Theatre and both Nick and Sam were trying to contact me on the phone and effectively I didn't respond. Good. And no, it wasn't good. It was terrible. I mean, how on earth you're supposed to get further along the, the we're road? We're waiting for responses from directors. <laughs> and then wait for a response from you. That wasn't a But in fact, in the end, he, he did it. Although I don't suppose, funny enough, I don't think that was the best. I loved it. But I don't think it was necessarily the best thing we've done together. Yeah. So, yeah, so perhaps we should have, perhaps we should have waited. Interesting. He said, when I spoke to him, friend of the pod, uh, Sam, she said that he didn't think he got it right, Leah. But he said he thought you disagreed with him about that. Yes, did. well, no, I mean, I, no, in fact, perhaps I'm just parroting what I know he thought. I see. Because I know he wasn't happy. I, and, and there were weaknesses in all productions. But I, I, I know that I, he got me to do a Leah that I was profoundly excited to research. No, I'm not saying the result was necessarily good. But yes, perhaps I'm just parroting what he, I, I, I felt that he felt. Um, what you were excited to research was the falling apart with dementia. Yeah, the, um, yeah, that's a very, comp- that was a very uh, convoluted way of saying what I was trying to say, which is that I'm, I'm, I don't necessarily think that I, I got it right. But yes, I think there were things that were discovered with Sam about Leah mm. that I think were genuinely valuable. Sure. And um, I've got this thing, I, you know, I've got this thing, and I've, I've said it many times, but I, that thing of trying to strip away preconceptions about parts in my head. Because however hard we try, I've never done Anthony uh, like you have, but I've got my ideas stuck in the back of my head of what sort of person is that Anthony is. And the thing of, of Leah being a play that ends with reconciliation and forgiveness, I suddenly realised with Sam that it doesn't end with forgiveness and reconciliation. It, it ends with the promise of, or the possibility of reconciliation and forgiveness, but they don't get there. And the reason why Shakespeare is so, why Sam Johnson couldn't bear to see it, is that, that a marvellous thing that he invented, of course, which is Cordelia's death, he added to the, his source material, is to frustrate that reconciliation. They do not get reconciled. And there's a very famous scene about after he sort of recovers from his madness in inverted commas and he's ill and she comes and sees him and it's the most dazzling piece of writing of a hospital visit to an old 
an old relative. We've all done it, unfortunately. But seeing your dad in pyjamas, it's just one of the things you just don't, I don't know, it's difficult to compute. And she sees her dad in the pyjamas and they have this this scene and he says, forgive me, she says, no need to ask that. And I am bound upon a wheel of fire, he says, that famous speech. And then at the end of the thing, she says, should we go for a walk? That's the line that makes me go, Mm. makes me want to howl Mm. because it's what a daughter does to her ill father in a modern day hospital now, in a hospice or whatever. Mm. Shall we go for a walk? And then we can start, then we can start to heal and we can start to talk about this. So that is not a scene of reconciliation. That's a scene of somebody saying, I am bound upon a wheel of fire. And the idea that then he comes on and it's failed because she's dead. And I don't know, I th- that's, it sort of sounds minor, but it was the idea that I think Sam allowed me to discover that. I was really proud of that, mm. actually. And I was also proud of talk about Shakespeare editing. I was doing a programme about the first folio, a television programme. I went with a, an academic to the British Library or something to look at early editions of Lear. And at the end of Lear, there are two versions, one of which is the earlier one, we think, which is the, which ends with him saying, my heart will break, while well, conventional sort of my heart's break. The second one is the folio version, which is him pointing to his dead daughter and going, look there, look there. And it's usually glossed as a sort of visionary thing. Was she breathing? Perhaps he's fooling himself. Soft, mm. soft, light. And we were talking about it on this TV program, and she said, that's, that's what he's doing. And I said, well, what if he's not? Look there, look there, could be done to the people around him saying, look, look, at, look at that. This is what life's about, is looking at the corpse of your daughter. That's what it's about. And so he dies in a... So I remember that night, I just switched it around and just... Mm. Yeah, fury. It's not worked. Reconciliation hasn't worked. Love didn't work mm. because she's dead. Anyway, and it's that, that thing about you when you suddenly realize if you just flip the whole thing around, a whole different mm. universe wakes up. Would you think that's part of the compulsion? I mean, to be able to feel like with these ancient texts that you are somehow in whatever small or enormous way, breaking fresh Yes, I mean, look, I, don't, I, don't, I don't flatter myself that somebody else has not had those ideas before. But it is, it is for my own well, of course, gratification. It's revelatory. It's revelatory. So the revelation that Cassius, in, yeah, I've got the right name, Cassius in Julius Caesar. Cassius. Uh, Cassius. No, Cassius is a fellow, isn't it? Um, Cassius in Julius Caesar. I think threatens to commit suicide in every single scene. And I was doing that with Deborah Warner, and I suddenly thought, what? And I've always, again, assumed he's a sort of political hysteric, right. you know, a posturing outrage. And I said, well, what happens if he genuinely believes every time he says it? It means that when in his final scene he actually does do right. it, I don't know, there's something heartbreaking about the fact that that's what he's been leading up to because he simply can't cope with the idea of this political earthquake of somebody taking the kingship, he can't live. He can't live like that. So it's not, it's not a sort of um, hysterical sort of posture. It's, it's generally felt. And then that's what I mean when we, when, when we talked earlier about the moments of release, that thing of you're tired as an actor and you come on and you just go, this is just shit. This is the human condition. We're looking at the corpse of our child. Does it make it hard to go back to emptying the dishwasher? <laughs> well, inst- inst- interestingly enough, I uh, and people always ask about what I do when I get home. I can be in bed in half an hour. Could you? Yeah, always, always. And this is what I'm sort of, we're moving towards, aren't we? Which is that actually when the work stops, although I find it perennially fascinating, the work that we're allowed to do, best job in the world could go as well, isn't it? I mean, it just is. But yeah, no, I can get home after my two pints of beer, which is too much, but not outrageous. I, I think you're. Yeah, yeah. So two pints of beer. Having looked the human condition <laughs> in the in face, do you think? I think it's true. Well, I have my two pints of beer. I get back, have something to eat, 
and literally I can be I can be asleep within an hour and a half of ending the show. Okay, that's lights down on the end of part one of Sir Simon Russell Beale. Audio okay? Bearable? I mean, God knows it's not what he deserves. Uh, but it's certainly better than it was. I don't know. I didn't mind it. I hope you didn't either. I love this chat with Simon. I really, I really did. Please come back and join me for Act Two. You really won't regret it. It's an extraordinary chat that just deepens and deepens. He talks in part two about shooting himself every night and the effect that that had on him psychologically and this extraordinary idea of being still on stage and letting an audience share a kind of understanding of humanity with you when he played an unforgettable Constantine in The Seagull and Hamlet. Oh, how he kept a photo of his mother on the props table of the opening night of Hamlet. Oh, you're going <laughs> to want to hear about who about every two months Simon fixates on in an audience. It's extraordinary. Oh, yeah, the actor of his generation who he thinks... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is top dog. Um, that's interesting. Improvising Ibsen. <laughs> not given to all of us to be able to do. Oh, yeah. Who the bastard was who invented the matinee? All that and more in part two of Sir Simon Russell Beale. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here is stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. He sits in the balcony. Seems plain, sad and funny. That's stage, stage door Johnny. Stay, 